Great, thank you so much, uh, Nick. And uh, just a, a thank you from us. Um, LU Arts and Radar have been amazingly supportive of the work that we've been doing. Uh, and I just want to pass on my thanks to that uh, for that uh, for over the past two years. You've really been brilliant. So thank you so much. So this round table um, is come together in association with our Health and Wellbeing and Professional Wrestling Project, funded by the British Academy and the Grappling Arts Podcast, which I co-present with Sam West, who is also here as well, um, and with Wrestling Resurgence, which is a um, project we set up in 2017. I know John is also here, John Kirby's also here, and um, one of the other people who set that up. Um, so if you're interested in listening again, or you know someone who would like to join us but can't, then it'll be available through the Grappling Arts and wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, a little brief content warning uh, for you. We're going to be talking quite clearly about human body we might well discuss medical conditions pain and perhaps even time when touch becomes abuse so if just please please be aware of that before we begin I like to try and start with a an open uh, sense of where, where we might go so if that's not something that appeals to you this afternoon then I absolutely understand so onwards let me let me introduce our participants um, so I'm, I'm going to go in alphabetical order so first we have with us uh, Tom Dawkins he wrestles as Cara Noir the Black Swan is the current progress wrestling champion amongst many other things he's also the co-founder of Reset Lab Fitness and has a background in performance and martial arts so there's uh, also with us is Claire Heffert is she's a performance uh, performer athlete and wrestler from 1992 to 2007 she was part of UK funded national squads as a gymnast hurdler weightlifter skeleton bobber i'm not quite sure what one refers to oneself <laughs> skeleton bob athlete let's say am i even close um she also has an ma in cultural studies and is the founder of gymnast for change which is committed to an abuse-free environment for gymnasts and co-founder of reset lab fitness um, there's also Dominic Malcolm, who's a reader in sociology of sport at Loughborough University and the author of five monographs, including the pathbreaking and very accessible, even for me, who doesn't know anything about anything, uh, the concussion crisis in sport from Routledge in 2020. Um, and also with us is uh, Gareth McNary. He is a swimming coach at Loughborough Sport, secured his doctorate studying embodiment in swimming and has written articles on all sorts of fascinating topics, including uh, things like pain and sensory feel. And I'm Claire Warden. I'm senior lecturer in English and Drama at Loughborough University. Uh, I'm the author of three monographs and the 2016 co-edited Performance and Professional Wrestling and uh, co-founded Wrestling Resurgence, which is basically a project that wonders what happens when you put pro wrestling into art galleries. Um, so the five of us started um, kind of initially kind of um, fragmentedly, but fragmentedly, yeah, in a fragmented way. And then we came together to talk a bit about this idea of collaborative touch. And one of the troubles with interdisciplinary work uh, that this project is sort of emerging from is trying to find a lexicon or a language for shared experience, like how we talk about things, what are the connecting points between different disciplines. And this felt like a topic that we could all engage with despite our disciplinary and practice-based differences. And um, so all five of us, I think, make, study and perform and compete in really different ways. And I use those words intentionally because I think academia is much as a competition <laughs> as sport in lots of ways and probably as much of a competition as wrestling. So I'm using these terms um, 
I think accurately. So um, finding a shared lexicon while maintaining diversity of um, approaches. Oh, sorry, let me just keep letting people in as they come. Um, while maintaining a diversity of approaches and ideas is a real struggle in interdisciplinary work. And we hope that this roundtable will really help with this. We're going to chat for about 40 minutes and then we're going to open the floor for questions and we will finish on the hour. So if you'd like to put your questions in the chat or you'd like just to um, ask questions when um, at the end, please, we'll, 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 I'll, I'll invite, um, I'll, I will invite hands. Um, if you um, are in the space and you're not in the round table, can I invite you to put your uh, microphone on mute for a moment? That would be super. Um, hearing music. It's nice, but it doesn't. Nick, can you see who, <laughs> who that is? Um, Graham, I think it's you. Nice, nice to see you, by the way, but um, you might... Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> um, I quite like the soundtrack, but we'll, you know. Um, I'm so okay, sorry. Not sorry. at all. It's lovely to have you with us and you're all fine. Um, so let me uh, make a start with a really open question for our panellists, which is what is collaborative touch to you in your context? Um, so anybody, anybody like to start us off? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come to Claire first, um, just go around the space. Claire, any thoughts about what this an idea of collaborative touch might be? Sorry, go on, on mute. Um, I think in the, in the world of gymnastics, um, collaborative touch would look like a completely new vision for how athlete-coach relationships would work. Um, I, as you mentioned in the intro, founded Gymnast for Change um, because uh, it's been widely acknowledged in the past year that there's a lot of abuse issues within the world of gymnastics. And um, one of the ways in which uh, it has emerged that this shows up is through the power imbalance between a co the coach and gymnast. Um, gymnastics is a really, really dangerous sport, but it's not really acknowledged to be a dangerous sport. Um, and you learn to do very difficult skills at a young age. So that means you've got really young gymnasts, usually between the ages of six and 12, um, who are being hefted into the air by um, usually older men, much older men, middle-aged men, or uh, men in their 20s and 30s. And so it creates this really difficult power imbalance. So I think collaborative touch and gymnastics would be a really amazing uh, way to think through how you could make a safer sport um, in which gymnasts were empowered to say when they felt comfortable or uncomfortable with being touched. Mm, yeah, great. And that's a really useful, useful start. Thank you, Claire. And, and, and think, thinking about it as being a kind of a great, a great potential way of improving something, I think is something we'll come back to. Um, Dom, maybe I'll come to you uh, and, and kind of with a with a background in concussion, I imagine collaborative touch means something <laughs> quite different. <laughs> You're on mute at the moment. Thank you. Um, Touch is really interesting in terms of concussion because when we see players go off the pitch for a head injury assessment, they're basically being assessed on all of their senses apart from touch. So they're assessed on their memory, their balance, their uh, visual uh, issues and hearing issues. Um, but touch is the thing that's absent from those extended tests uh, of, of a player's capability. Uh, and ironically, perhaps, one of the solutions to, to what I call the concussion crisis in my book is the advocacy of sports called touch, touch rugby, touch football, which ironically involves much less physical contact than, um, 
than than their normal namesakes, shall we say? So touch is really fundamental to the to the way we play sports, why we play sports, and how they've developed. So touch um, and the use of hands was fundamental in splitting rugby union from association football back in the 1870s. That was the the big debate about whether you use your hands to control the ball. And it continues that one of the things we desire about sport, one of the things that makes these sports popular is the fact that we touch people and we touch people um, in strongly physical ways that we we just don't in other parts of, um, our, of our lives. And the other aspect of touch, which I think is really interesting, is when I've been researching with um, healthcare providers in sport um, and they talk about the importance of touch there. Now, touch um, in this sense, is always gloved because there are um, medical or healthcare um, precautions are around um, exchange of body fluids and so on. But um, one of the things that we've tried to examine in the past is how doctors and physiotherapists are differently valued in sport. And physiotherapists tend to have this lofted status, partly because they can contribute to performance, as in sporting performance, um, but partly also because through their hands they generate a sense of trust with their with the athlete patients, uh, and that trust um, extends uh, across a whole range of things that um, they do in their working with the athletes, uh, both physical and mental side as well. So touch is fundamental to all those ranges of uh, aspects of sport. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Dom. I'm I'm now kind of going on down a bit of a rabbit hole about thinking about gloved touch which I think is something that we probably won't be able to fully explore today but I'm very interested in thinking about further and um, Tom maybe I can come to you for this initial question and um, to kind of let let set the frame for where we're going today so yeah like um, wrestling as a whole is um, all about <clears throat> performative touch you know we're exploring different types of um, brutality really in every everything that we do um, the and it's the, this kind of perform, performance of violence. And that can be um, like, um, the touch in itself can be guided. It is a way of learning and understanding. Um, and the, the performers themselves are voluntarily submissive at parts and dominant mm -hmm. in their performance. Um, uh, the good performers will be able to know when uh, too much is too much and and stop the flow of um, any kind of um, wrestling uh, or any kind of like movement uh, safely um, and as a performance uh, performing art we are allowing someone to hit us with a kind of a boundary of um, I suppose, I suppose kind of like allowing the impact to happen. Yeah, I, I'm really taken with this idea of, of submission, which is often a word that is, it, well, it's a very loaded word, isn't it? And um, and the way that that might be, that a kind of vol a voluntary submission might be part of our 
acceptance of collaborative touch. Again, perhaps something that we'll have time or not to come back to today. I feel like in many ways we're going to start a conversation today and then be like, oh, we could do with another hour, but <laughs> let's start it anyways and move on. And thank you very much, Tom. Um, Gareth, come in on this initial question and then I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, by the way, to just so the floor knows where I'm going. A bunch of questions that are kind of, some people are going to answer and some people aren't. We'll just see where we go. So um, Gareth, yeah, come in about this, about this notion and what you understand by it. Yeah, um, I apologise. There's a lot of background noise from my uh, my line at the minute as well. So if you pick anything up, I am sat in a Cornish pub, so it's that's why it's a bit loud, a bit ruckus. So, um, but yeah, so I think very similar to Claire in, in gymnastics uh, perspective, swimming maybe 15, 20 years ago went through a bit of an overhaul around removing touch from from lessons and and, and learn to swim programs because of the kind of inappropriate touch and problems that we'd had within the sport around. Um, sexual misconduct and abuse of, of, of athletes in that way so we the sport took a massive upheaval and, and now you'll notice that there's very few swimming teachers are actually in the water with with young athletes especially in that learn to swim program maybe with mothers babies or really young ones there's still someone in there as, a, as an assistant but um the degrees of touch have been very much changed to just being supportive and like behind the head if someone's in the water so it's very very it's been very very I want to say cleaned up. That's obviously not the wrong, the right word, but it, it, there were massive steps taken. Um, from my perspective, in working in a, a kind of uh, more performance uh, arena, um, there's probably very little touch, if any, between a coach and an athlete. Partly because mm -hmm. the coach is on the deck and the athlete's in the war, so it's very, um, very rare that there'd be any kind of contact in that way. Um, mm -hmm. It might be on a very rare occasion that we might get an athlete out of the water and actually manipulate a, a body part into a position where they want to go but again it's all through are you okay with us doing this is this is this are you happy for us to help you and i might the guys i work with are all 18 plus as well so it's a little bit of a different environment in, in that respect too yeah. um so so the, the idea of human to human touch within swimming is very very limited but um there's a huge importance on kind of human to environment. Um, we, we operate in a medium that's very different to, to air. We are completely surrounded by water um, and that water can feel different uh, on different days. So the touch element becomes hugely important to considering hands are what are used as the primary sort of form of locomotion through the water. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, I guess we'll come on to those. I don't want to jump any further ahead. So that's where we kind of touches kind of that, major driving force between the human being and water and actually getting from point a to point b for us yeah thank you Gareth. that's really helpful and i think also just to um kind of already bring up sites of good practice which is one of the things that the bigger project is really trying to encourage um i wondered perhaps just because you've opened up that question Gareth, that maybe we'll just go down that route first and think about the environment which i know was a question that you were interested in pursuing um, and i'm particularly interested perhaps to hear from tom and claire about how the different environments that one is a gymnast in or one wrestles in makes a difference to touch you know that the perhaps the hardness of the floor for example or um uh, or any other way that you want to understand the environment the crowd uh, makes it makes a difference to uh, the performance that that the, the performance that happens that that idea of touch in space touch and before and the environment tom did you have any thoughts about this one so yeah like um it's interesting because uh, about touching environment and and uh, around the uh, crowd aspect i definitely think there's um a 
possibility for performers uh, to be taken away in the moment, you know, and then not realize in um, uh, until after that um, they've put themselves at harm because of the um, the adrenaline or kind of that experience from being in front of a live crowd. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, um, you know, from my personal experience, it's also, um, it's it's an ongoing risk you know the ring itself does have movement and it does give but when wrestling comes out of the ring then we are just kind of in the element of the space that we're in and that's where we have to make the kind of correct decisions to actually um perform safely we're on kind of concrete wood what have you um Whereas if we don't have that, like the instrument of the ring mm. as the protection. Mm. Yeah. So kind of, kind of, um, uh, in essence, making quick, quick, relatively quick decisions on the environment that you're in and, and how touch changes in that environment, I guess. Claire, did you have any further thoughts on environment at all? Yeah, I, I think it's really, I was very interested in um, reading Gareth's comments um, in the prep for today uh, about the the change in temperature of water and how the feel of the water changes performance i think it's it's definitely very similar in uh, in gymnastics but i'd never really thought of it that way um, as a hurdler i definitely had always been uh, very aware of the environment and as a short person shorter shorter person shorter <laughs> athlete um, i was always very affected by the winds but um, I think if we think about touch in relation to gymnastics, there's a very interesting debate that's just happened within the gymnastics community, which is that in the trials for the Olympics this year, um, uh, Becky Downey, who's been omitted from the Olympic team, uh, was forced to trial on equipment was, that was not the equipment that would be used in the Olympics and not the equipment that she's used to training on. So um, I think it, you know, it became a debate around why was she being asked to train and compete on on inappropriate equipment for her as a gymnast and it was basically to um put her at a disadvantage because they didn't want to select her but actually if we reframe that situation into one of touch it throws open a whole again a whole possibility of thinking about how you might train athletes in the future so if you're a gymnast and you're on a beam a beam is basically a piece of uh, equipment that's constructed with metal legs and then a piece of wood, which is 10 centimeters wide, it's a meter off the floor, and you've got a tiny little bit of padding on top. And you've got to perform somersaults and extremely difficult moves in the air to land on this little piece of equipment. And it, the, what, you're, what you're touching the equipment with is your hands and your feet. And your hands and your feet are really the kind of proprioceptive antenna, which allow you to achieve these incredible feats of balance. And I think that actually if we spent more time focusing on what does it feel like to your hands and feet when you're moving across the equipment and use some of the terminology that Gareth has obviously been thinking about with swimming, it could be super helpful in learning to train gymnasts to feel more comfortable on the equipment. So in the case of Becky Downey, it was particularly affecting her on asymmetric bars because the bars that she trains on go at a different angle to the bars that she was asked to trial on. And again, there, that's all about when you're when you're doing a bar routine, it's it's your hands on on wood on this really difficult piece of equipment where you're flying through the air. Um, so touch again, it's like this proprioceptive um, 
relationship that you develop between the environment and, and your body. And um, to think about the qualities of that touch, I think would be a really, really interesting way for gymnasts to train to allow them to achieve greater feats. Because at the moment, you're only ever thinking about how do I avoid the pain uh, of the rips on my hands or the, the, the pain if I fall. Whereas if, if you were to think about it more like, what does this set of equipment uh, feel like? Does it feel velvety? Does it feel uh, like it's got a greater spring? Um, and then the gymnast focused on those qualities. I think it would make it easier for certain gymnasts to be able to perform routines. Mm. And when I look at, for example, Simone Biles performing a beam routine, doing the most incredible tricks in the world, that to me, I could do them on the floor, but I would never think to be able to put them on a beam because that just seems so scary and insane. Um, to her, she's obviously doing something. She's computing her body with the equipment in some kind of feedback loop, which means that she doesn't feel scared in a way that mm. I do or other gymnasts might. So I think that there's this huge possibility there to think about this connection between proprioceptive touch and, and the equipment that would mm. allow people to feel safer in the future. I, yeah, and that's so fascinating. I, I'm kind of thinking around this idea of the antennae as well as the hands and feet as antennae. And that's so it's such an interesting idea and kind of uh, applies in so many different ways. And we'll, we'll come back to issues of pain and risk and danger and all those sorts of things. I wanted just in, in this terms of environment, I wanted to come back to Gareth just to make sure that we've sort of covered some of the things that he was thinking about when he kind of proposed this as an idea to talk about. Uh, Gareth, come back in and, and share anything else that we've missed. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's great, and I think myself and Claire can probably have a very good conversation at, at another time around that. Mm -hmm. So it's it, I didn't even thought of it in that way, and how it might translate into other sports because obviously swimming is a very um, kind of normal environment to me. I was a swimmer, so I I kind of understand the experiences that they had, and they talked about how um, a change in the, the temperature of the pool can make it go from feeling that, like if it's a nice cold pool, it feel crisp and hard, and they could grip the water better with the hands. Whereas that uh, degree or two up from where it should be, the water then suddenly turns into something slimy and really slippy and greasy on the body. And it's, and it's just, it, it's then the knock on effect from that um, kind of proprioceptive touch of, right, this is hot. I'm feeling this way. It's making me feel bad. I know this session's going to go bad because I'm going to be overheating X, Y, Z. So it then just starts a chain reaction into it a different way. Mm. Whereas if the pool is their, their normal piece of, it's their normal space. And they would refer to their training pool as their pool. So it's like as if they owned it, they're used to that environment. Um, and any deviation from that norm then just sets them into a, a different chain of events. And I guess it's the, the same as what Claire's just said there around different pieces of equipment. If it's not what you're used to training on, instantly you're you're on the back foot and you're you're worrying and you're you're then you're the link between mind and body then kicks into overdrive and and something else happened so, so yeah I, I think that's that's great I think we've we started a conversation around how this can transit into other sports and other environments and, and what it can do from there yeah great thank you Gareth I think there's like a, a huge conversation around this that um, I'd like to kind of continue doing at some point this feels like so much like a starting point to me it's really exciting um, I want to come on um, then through that um, because I, I've sort of got something at the back of my mind that um, and, and kind of is rippling through a number of things which is around kind of training and and teaching and things like that that we're, that we're all kind of involved in and I wonder if I can invite Dom to come in with an idea that he kind of posited in our initial preparation which is about being hands-on on. and I've been thinking about the idea of being hands-on ever since you wrote it in that email Dom um, so um, 
because hands-on is of course a touch thing right um but we use it as a kind of um catch-all for it's very hands-on teaching like you know i do that in the drama studio dom i wonder if you could come in and just share your understanding of this idea of being hands-on and how it relates to some of the things that you study and then maybe we'll we'll open it up and see how it works for other people yeah i mean the idea of hands-on is as, as you say it's very um it's a very positive term and it suggests being proactive and it really comes out of the, the study that I previously mentioned with, with physiotherapists, where they talk about their relative advantage compared to doctors uh, in that they are hands-on, that they manipulate the body um, of the athlete. And, and some of the quotes that they came out with were, were about how just actually that first touch almost was so important and that an athlete from being touched by the physiotherapist could tell or came to a conclusion in their own mind about whether the physiotherapist was competent or not. Once they'd established that sense of trust that that physiotherapist was competent, that this would then um, kind of expand into a whole range of um, aspects of helping the athlete um, from emotional problems uh, to try to solve problems around particular aspects of techniques. So for instance, if they were injured, how do they continue to perform whilst coping with that injury and how does the physiotherapist help them do that? And so this kind of hands-on became the, the kind of signature almost to explain uh, the dominance of the physiotherapists. Um, and the trust that they were able to, to establish with their athletes. And that trust was remarkable. So some of them even talked about um, misdiagnosing ACL injuries, but the athlete coming back to them because of all of that thing that they'd established through physical proximity and spending time with them that essentially saved the physiotherapist from career ruin because they could be quite easily thrown out of the sport. Mm. Yeah, I, and we'll, I think we're going to pick up in a minute this idea of pain and injury, trust, and the idea of being consensual. I think there's, it's very, it's a very rich answer to the, to this, to this initial question. Um, Tom, Gareth, Claire, anything to add on this idea of being hands-on? I imagine, particularly with kind of reset lab, this is something that you guys think about quite a lot. Yeah, I, th I think. Um because we teach adult gymnastics with Reset Lab, um, what we try to do with being hands-on is that we, uh, we teach our sessions where we divide the group, say we've got a group of 20 people, we'll divide them into smaller groups of between four and six. And then we have sort of uh, amassed a, a library of different coaching techniques and supporting techniques that mean that we can get two adults from that group to support another gymnast. So it becomes peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, and that's because we want to build kind of team spirit and collaboration between our students um, as a way of uh, have kind of uh, approaching positive coaching methods, but also because otherwise it, it would come down to Tom to supporting all 20 gymnast to do a backflip in one session and it it would be quite an exhausting process I we, ha we have done that and it was not sustainable um so I think hands-on for us probably means less about us being hands-on and more about us encouraging and empowering our students to be hands-on with one another um, and to do that in a way that everybody feels safe and comfortable with 
Mm. Yeah, that language, um, I, I feel very acutely as somebody who works in a theatre context, trying to allow the people within that theatre context to, to feel comfortable about being hands on with each other. I think that's that's very rich. Yeah. Tom, come in just in case there's something else here that we, we've missed. Yeah, I definitely think with with wrestling and gymnastics, there's definitely a um, uh, it depends on experience and, and what um, experience that individual has had in their life with coaching or, 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 for example, my background is like dance and martial arts. So touch is a big part of, you know, all of these performances mm -hmm. in different ways. And <clears throat> there there has been a handful of times where um, you uh, um, you ask the, um, say, uh, a new trainee at wrestling, a wrestling school, oh, can I show you this? Is it okay if I, you know, grab your wrist? Um, and in that moment, you can, um, you can feel this sense of like um, rigidity because they're just not used to being touched in everyday society. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, you can get a lot of information just from um the first touch of an individual of where they are, where they feel safe. And it's about kind of um, getting them from no touch to in wrestling terms in kind of like performing that, like the real, you know, playing with that kind of um, impact and, and growing their, their experience um, in that. And, and going back to kind of like the, the idea of this touching uh, um, environment, like I perform barefoot. And the reason why I perform barefoot is because it makes me more conscious of um, the space around me. Cause I've trained for years, like martial arts is always barefoot. Dance when I was dancing was always barefoot. Um, I get a lot of feedback. And when I was um, wearing shoes and wrestling boots in the world of wrestling, I was more prone to kind of like um, tweaks in my ankles and knees. And being more conscious of how I place my feet around the ring and outside of the ring uh, started to prevent injury. Mm. That connection, um, that kind of psychosomatic connection between kind of the mind and the foot um, is incredibly incredibly interesting like the, the body is not just the body that we see but is also the relationship between the mind and the body and how those things uh, function function together and actually when, when we feel most comfortable in the way that we use the body we, we need to understand those things working together I think so um yeah great let I, I, I want to Hi, make sure just... that we, oh yes of course Dom please come in Sorry. no uh, no sure. please please I'm, I'm just conscious of I'm conscious of moving things along but I'd be delighted to, yeah. to carry on kind of exploring this a little bit so yeah please. just something that occurs to me from hearing the various inputs here is about um how we develop knowledge and what the hierarchy of knowledge development is. So the development of science is all about observation and repetition. And what we're talking about here is not experts doing experiments and repeating them, but lay people experiencing things through, thing, through senses that only they can experience. And so it's really interesting that we're talking about touch. It, it talks to a much longer development of the way we develop knowledge in different ways. And that's why I suppose it's a relatively new topic um, in the social sciences, the social sciences of sport, but, but also more generally. Yeah, I think there's this sense that it's both a kind of long form thing and also really short. So like, I agree, like within a sort of academic disciplines, it all feels really new, 
but I've been learning through touch since I was six months old. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, we all have been because that's how we make sense of the world around us. Um, Claire, come in, you, you unmuted to share another thought with us, yeah. Yeah, I think Dom's comment about hierarchies of knowledge is super interesting, mm-hmm. um, particularly in relation to gymnastics where um, obviously it's actually the gymnast that's performing the skill. Uh, incredibly difficult things that to any other human would feel utterly impossible. But the way that gymnastics operates is that it's an incredibly authoritarian sport and the coaches treat the gymnasts as property and they will embed the message to the gymnast that the gymnast is incapable of doing the skill without the coach. And if they leave the coach, they won't have success anymore. They won't be able to perform, um, that they have no right to leave that coaching relationship. Um, so I think the production of knowledge in gymnastics, from what Dom's saying, um, it would be something that would be really, really interesting to think about because mm-hmm. absolutely it's considered that it's the coach that has the knowledge and that the gymnast actually doesn't learn anything. Um, mm-hmm. As a gymnast, when you come out of the system or elite gymnastics anyway, you feel even bad to perform the skills without supervision of your coach because you have been so um, groomed into thinking that they are not your skills the the skills belong to the coach even though it's got it's gone Mm. through your proprioceptive systems Mm. yeah and that I I think that in some ways begins to answer at least and we'll only have a beginning to answer today I think that question about the the connection between touch and safe and and safe touch and unsafe touch and the hierarchies of touch because actually you know we, we only need to look at what's happened in our entertainment industry, what's happened indeed in, in the wrestling industry in Britain, what's happened in the sporting industry, like the work that you've done with Gymnastics for Change, Claire, like to, to know that actually, in while we're talking about collaborative touch in quite a kind of positive and energizing sort of a way, underneath that are all sorts of really problematic issues around gender, around hierarchy, around class, around around all sorts of things that we probably don't have time to explore but but I think this is really a, a very fruitful way of kind of broadening out our understanding of 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 touch and maybe complicating it a little bit as well actually um yeah um I want to ensure that we have a bit of time to talk about um something that that came up with with everyone's thinking I think in our prep which was around pain and touch and the intersection of, which actually leads very well from what you just said there, Claire, like, I, like we, we kind of started with like, let's all come together, be hands on. And, t- and now we've suddenly gone, oh yeah, hold on. Maybe this is more problematic than we might think it is, which is, so it's actually quite a good and interesting narrative for this round table to take. Um, may, I, I wonder if, um, perhaps I can come to Tom first for this, um, talk, to talk a little bit about this intersection of touch and and pain for you because you've already kind of intimated a little bit about the fact that wrestling is in essence performative and yet having spent a number of hours sitting by a wrestling ring and much far fewer hours than you have I imagine that you see you know you see pain all the time so yes yes and no about the performative thing so I wondered if you had anything maybe to start us off thinking about this intersection of touch and pain I think uh, in the world of wrestling pain is relative which sounds really weird because um, we are, you know, voluntarily hurting ourselves um, in this kind of like, as I said, like allowing someone to hit us or allowing someone to do a move. Um, um, I think that um, it's also a, like it. There's a lot of communication in pain, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the world of wrestling. If I want you to go in a particularly direction, 
um, within a uh, wrestling match, take a simple wrist lock. If I want you to stop moving or you're going to roll into a direction I don't want you to go, I'll hold you. So I'll give you a pain, a very light pain signal <laughs> just to say, stop. Mm. And it is within the world of wrestling, it is a communication tool. It is a way of saying uh, to someone, you know, um, now is the right time to carry on. Now is the right time. So it, it's a, it's definitely, a, as I previously mentioned, it's a guide. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, you're volunteering, uh, you know, and it's uh, what I was trying to get to at the beginning was it is within the community. Like we as wrestlers watch other people perform and we know that they're safe. Mm. We go, okay, that was a, that was a safe landing or that was a safe impact. And then as wrestlers, and sometimes even as the audience, we know when things are not right, someone's been hurt or uh, the impact isn't necessarily clean so then um, that will be when concern starts to happen either for the performer inside the ring or people on the outside watching or even people backstage um, and that level of kind of knowledge of what's what's safe and what's not is really important in the world of wrestling just to kind of uh, you know as a collaboration tool and to keep everyone safe mm. yeah yeah I, I'm, I'm fast fast this idea of communication that pain might be a form of communication, which in essence is a form of communication in lots of different ways, right? Like that sense of like, where if you've hurt yourself and your body is constantly telling you you've hurt yourself and you're like, look, I, I know that my, I've, got, I've, got a sore, I, I've got an injury in my back. My body doesn't have to keep telling me that. Can it not just stop this communication? You know, in essence, injury is always communication, right? Um, or pain is, oh, sorry, I should say pain is always communication, which is, um, yeah, which, which is a very different way of understanding pain, I think. Um, Gareth, Claire, to, uh, Dom, did you have any ideas about this idea of pain and touch and that intersection that you wanted to share? Gareth, you've unmuted, so please. Yeah, um, I think it's just building from what Tom's just said there as well and actually sticking in a, in a, a space that he's probably pretty used to in martial arts and maybe mixed martial arts. There's a bit of research that talks about pain as being used as a, as a teaching and a learning tool because to in order to put someone into a a specific submission type maneuver you're in you're inflicting pain onto someone else to understand how that that skill is actually applied to someone and then they're obviously then tapping out on you and you understand right that must be the right move because i've i've inflicted that pain onto them and their feedback is to tap out because because mm -hmm. i've done it i've done it right so it's almost mm -hmm. a, a learning tool it's communicative like we've just said there mm -hmm. um and again then this idea that that kind of flips pain in and, and from this idea that always been a negative connotation to being something that can actually be positive as well. Um, mm. So it's, it's it, like, like Tom said, it, it allows performers to, to negotiate their space around the ring. It allows mixed martial artists the opportunity to train and learn techniques. And, mm. and for the swimmers that I work with, it kind of allowed them to understand the difference between um, what was training and moving towards their goal through a kind of positive pain and the difference between what would have been the bad pain of injury as they would have they would have put it so something mm. like the, the kind of the burn of a, of a lactate kind of tolerance set or the sort of fatigue in the shoulders from a big long aerobic sort of uh, swim training session that was maybe three or four thousand meters in that set um that they're they're switching that as being something that's moved them towards their goal Whereas the sharp sort of stabbing pain of an injury or 
that's come on instantly and and, and is and is there and is really high pitched like that kind of high frequency pain and that's when they knew they had to shut things down and but again mm. communicate if something's not right here is it a technical thing have i just pushed it too hard today and um, what mm. can i learn from this bad pain as much as i can learn from the good pain if that makes mm. any sense whatsoever uh, no it totally does i'm i'm so taken by this sort of idea of learn of 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 pain and touch and learning. And I feel like I need a good few hours to sit down and think about it more deeply. But I think it's something that connects us all together actually in the work that in the different work that we're doing. Um, Claire, um, Dom, did you have any further thoughts about this kind of pain touch communication thing we're talking about? Claire, come in. Um, yeah, I think the, the way that Gareth describes it, this uh, difference between good pain and bad pain, good pain being pain that gets you further towards your goal um th that's super interesting and that way of thinking totally chimes with my experience of being an athlete and wow. working at your lactic threshold you you very much learn that it's really important to be in that zone and if you've spent time in that zone each day or e at each training session and then your body's processing the pain uh, of recovering from that um, th that's very different from an injury pain um, however, I think pain is really interesting, particularly in athletics, I came across it, that there's a whole culture of overtraining. And so then there's a kind of question around like overtraining becomes normalized because you have your goal and you learn to push yourself and be in pain every day in pursuit of your goal. And therefore you eventually get to a point where that completely goes past a sensible level and everybody that's around you is training in the same way and that overtraining. So that's kind of a particular issue with goal, goal related pain, I guess. Mm. Whereas in gymnastics, it's very different. Um, again, because of this authoritarian uh, disciplinary style of coaching, um, what we've heard again and again and again in the last year since the Gymnast Alliance movement began is gymnasts reporting very, very serious injuries um, to coaches, to medical professionals, um, to their parents and not being believed. And so uh, there are multiple, uh, you know, literally hundreds around the world uh, reports of girls training on broken, broken backs, fractures in the back, broken limbs, um, and that is quite normal. And so then the idea of pain and training becomes really problematic. Uh, and very much falls into um, abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think when you've been normalized into those kinds of relationships with uh, pain, which is produced in training context, uh, it skews your perspective of what constitutes pain and what constitutes pain that's worth listening to. Um, and therefore, as a coach, it then becomes quite difficult. Um, and I so I've spent a lot of time in the last year thinking about how to not reproduce those patterns of coaching where I allow my students to just ignore it and carry on. Um, Tom and I, um, I think we discuss it a lot and, and we also sort of perhaps sit in slightly different places with this. So for example, if we think about our personal training clients, um, when you're a personal trainer, um, dealing with your clients' reports of pain is really problematic because often the difference difference between athletes and non-athletes who are participating in um, some kind of training is often their their ability to tolerate pain and as Gareth has put it previously um, like an, that there is this acceptance as an athlete you've got to learn to tolerate pain in one form or another um, but with personal training clients they don't know how to do that they've not been conditioned to that and it 
it can set up this difficult dynamic where you're constantly as the coach unsure of whether to believe their pain or not you know is it pain that's worth listening to should we be stopping what we're doing and changing what we're doing based on their report of pain or is this them not having the ability to tolerate a small amount of pain and that becomes really complex to negotiate um and so the best way that i've found to do that recently is that there is a physiotherapist who works in gymnastics in america um called dave tilly and he runs a podcast called shift movement science and he's recently put together um, a kind of protocol for coaches, which takes it almost out of the hands of the coach and says, uh, basically, there's a kind of rule of three. If this, this person's reported the pain more than three times, or it's more than three centimeters, if it's under three centimeters to a major joint, or if it's been happening for more than three weeks, seek medical advice. So mm-hmm. um, I, I have found that having a, a kind of set of guidance like that to follow has been super useful in helping to differentiate between good pain and bad pain. What's the kind of pain that you should be listening to and changing what you're doing in relation to. Um, mm. Going back to gymnastics, I've heard a report, for example, that a gymnast currently on the Olympic team due to go to Tokyo uh, needs to have a scan uh, for some kind of fracture and her coach is not allowing the scan to happen because she wow. doesn't want the gymnast to not be able to go. So that's the kind of difficulties that we're talking about. Yeah. And about pain in gymnastics. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we've particularly found in the health and wellbeing project is how people, how people articulate their experience of touch and pain is and and the way that that actually relates to what I'm going to call the real but I realize that that's a really problematic thing to say but like what you know the the actual injury is like profound and this is this is key in wrestling but also probably in other sports as well profound can be profoundly different like you know I've heard a number of times I'm sure Dom has in his interviews as well that we've done this project I've never been concussed this is I've never been concussed but that night I got knocked out I'm like hmm, interesting uh, like the way that we tell stories about about our own health and well-being I think is really interesting and um, Dom come in and then I'll, I'll hand to Gareth and I'm going to open the floor for some questions in a, in a second so Dom just please I'm coming on this yeah. issue so uh, a couple of quick things because I'm conscious we want to get on to uh, questions <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, one of the things that Claire opened up there was this idea of um, autonomy of the athlete um, and athletes not being allowed to um, seek medical attention. And that's possibly or probably the ethically worst end of the spectrum of, of everything we see where um, people are not allowed to see medics. And I've seen that in my own concussion research. But the opposite end of this spectrum is perhaps most concussions that people experience, which actually don't ex- involve any pain at all, resolve fairly quickly, perhaps following a loss of consciousness, but immediately afterwards, uh, the participant feels that they're able to carry on. And this is why concussion is such the big problem that it is, because there's no pain telling you to stop. Uh, there's no, often no reduction in your functioning or performance, or you, you don't perceive that to be the case anyway. Uh, and that's why, for me, that makes it the, 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 if you like, the cutting edge of this kind of research, 20 years ago, we were thinking about masculinity and the pain principle and how boys learn to tolerate types of pain, and that made them into men. And now we're looking at these injuries that may not involve pain and have a whole lot of different ethical and medical practice uh, issues associated with them. 
Mm. Yeah. So, so basically when our body does not communicate pain, but actually there's still, so again, we're back to communication, learning the, the, the way that our mind computes these things. It's all sort of wrapped, wrapped up in a very complex way. I think, um, Gareth, just a final point on this before, and then I'm going to, I promise to open it up for questions. Yeah, it was just kind of echoing a little bit what Claire said, and, and Dom's just started to touch on it there again about this idea of masculinity and how that's kind of still a predominant thing within the world of sport. And therefore, it's you don't want to show pain or you don't want to admit to being in pain or injured because you've got the fear of deselection. And um, I think it's, um, it might have been in the early 80s or 90s, um, research, I think it was like Nixon has talked about cultures of risk within sport and like how, how and when would you risk a player if they're, if uh, if your star player is eighty percent fit, is he better than putting on someone who's a, who's a less player who's one hundred percent fit? If you're in a cup final, and, and it's those ideas of the wider sports net around them in terms of their agent, their their um, uh, sponsorships, anything that they've got riding on stuff, and whether they want to play as well. So it becomes a whole myriad of other cultural elements that mm. tie into this notion of being in pain or being injured. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and just again, on Claire's point, like like for me as a coach. Um, I, I work from the mantra of I can see what the athlete can see, but I can't feel what the athlete feels. So if I don't listen to what my athlete's telling me, if they're saying they're sore, they're injured or they're, they're hurt or whatever, then, then I'm not doing my job right. And my duty of care is to them. And, yeah, and I, there's a huge amount of trust in, involved in that to believe that the athlete is, is telling you the truth. But I think with, with 18 year old plus guys who are guys and girls, sorry, who are, who are young adults and can make those decisions is a little bit easier for me. But mm. even with a young age group kid, I, I'm not, I'm, I've got a duty of care to look after those guys. And if, if I'm not listening to what they're saying, then, then I shouldn't be coaching as far as I'm concerned. So that's my little rant on that. At the end no, there. no, I appreciate that rant. And actually it leads us into thinking about good practice, which is where I wanted to end anyway. And I think that sense of um, trust is something that we've sort of touched on a little bit as well. Uh, listening and uh, understanding that we cannot feel what other people feel as such um, and, and ways to kind of overcome that communication barrier, I think is all really interesting. I'm, I'm going to open the floor for some questions. We've got sort of 10 minutes, I guess, for some questions. Um, please feel free to put some questions in the chat. Um, I'm going to invite our speakers uh, as we're doing this to place any links that they have to their own work, to things that have that you feel like the, the rest of the crowd would like to, to engage with, um, how they can follow you on Twitter, whatever else it might be, uh, into, into the chat as well, if that's all right, just an easier way of doing it than inviting it at the end. So um, perhaps I could, I could open the floor to, to, some, uh, to some questions. Um, maybe I could start with this one from Sue. Um, hi, good to see you. Well, good to hear from you, Sue. Um, so she says, I'm fascinated with the idea that pain is acceptable in various sports you represent on the panel. In dance, pain is telling you that you're working incorrectly and that you need to perform the movement differently. Would the panel like to comment on this idea of performing correctly or incorrectly? And does choreography come into play as a pain protector in gymnastics and wrestling? What a fascinating question, Sue. Thank you. Um, I, I might, <laughs> despite Tom going, ah, at that one, I might I might come to him first, because I, I know that choreography is something that you're particularly interested in with your background and what you do now. So did you have any thoughts about, about this choreography as being maybe a way of, of alleviating some of those problems? Yeah, like uh, choreography and wrestling is... Uh is it's not as uh as not as much as people think it is you know it's very loosely choreographed um it's kind of like a stand-up i know where i'm going but i you know i might veer off and be being safely competent with the person that you're working with and using these touch uh tools 
to move people through um, is really the, uh, the key. Um, mm -hmm. the, um, so yeah, that, that's why I, why I was like, whoa, with, with the idea <laughs> of, you know, choreography, because that, yeah, that is true. And uh, the choreography parts, you know, are normally the most dramatic bits. And they're the, they're the parts that I've, you know, verbally agreed to do with someone or offered to do with someone. Mm -hmm. um, if they unexpectedly did something uh, in more of the blank bits that I wasn't prepared for or wasn't willing to, then that would be, uh, that would then, you know, maybe cause a mistake or someone to get hurt. Then that is where either the level of experience or conditioning, or then that, that would be a negative uh, mm. version of, of pain. And I think um, the only other thing that I was thinking about there was like, um, the importance of conditioning and understanding what pain is. So I went through years of uh, martial arts training and like Muay Thai, where we would just stand there and let people kick our legs until we couldn't stand anymore. But that was to build up a level of tolerance. So then when we were about to compete, I could take a handful of leg kicks before my leg goes dead, you know, mm -hmm. and then keep going. And I feel that with wrestling, it's very much the same. There's a big part of conditioning that's an important part of safety you know mm -hmm. having this lockdown period and then returning to to wrestling particularly um after about a year off uh, my neck just from the whiplash from the impact was um it, it atrophied so i had to then build up that kind of pain threshold and tolerance in the muscles in my neck to actually be able to kind of perform and be you know successfully mm -hmm. do the choreography mm -hmm. Yeah, which, there's another term that we've been playing around with in our pre-conversation, which is resilience and building resilience into the body, which I think that Sue's question has allowed us to, to kind of venture into a little bit. Uh, thanks, Tom. Brilliant. I, I would come to everyone for answers to these questions, but I'm kind of conscious that we're going to just run out of time. So I hope it's all right just to pick on people. Um, so, um, so there's a question from, from, from Sam in the chat, which I think is a really important question. Um, and, and maybe maybe a number of people have kind of a response to this. Um, what difference has COVID made to your understanding of touch and, and maybe even like to the to the world's understanding of touch, which is a nice big question, but uh, but maybe particularly in your own field, how that how touch has differed with with in a time where we cannot touch each other. Uh, it's kind of an interesting time to be talking about touch, right? Um, anyone fancy coming in on this one? Yeah, I'll say a few words. Um, Thanks, Dom. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about COVID is that it has accelerated a number of changes that were going on anyway. And I think in relation to touch, it accelerates that um, rationalization and individualization of the body. So I think we touch each other much less than people did a century ago. That's a, a, a kind of long-term historical process. And what COVID showed us was that most um, sports that are popular um, cannot be um, cannot function without touch. So at the same time, there was also a push towards us all exercising as a way of helping our mental health. And I think what we see here is a drift away from contact and touch in sports towards health promoting physical activity. Um, and I think COVID has really just accelerated that long term process of of us all being much more isolated as individual bodies and less contaminating of each other. And I think the, the test of that will be just how long we'll be wearing masks after we don't have to, and it will just become a social norm that we'll all be doing it um, because 
we don't want to infect each other. Yeah. Yeah, contamination is such an interesting word to use in relation to some of the things we've been thinking about in terms of risk and pain and, and all manner of things. Um, Claire, come in on, on, this, on this issue yourself. Yeah, just to kind of pick up on that, um, I've found that as, as uh, lockdown has gone in and out of the various phases and I have returned to coaching on Saturday mornings with a, a recreational gymnastics club where we're coaching young people, um, in order to uh, for those sessions to go ahead in line with British Gymnastic COVID protocols, the number of changes that have been made to the way the sessions run in that um, the warm-ups have to be different, the way the equipment is set out is different. Equipment has to be covered with special pieces of plastic that can be wiped down. Stations have to be wiped down in between every rotation. It has changed the entire structure of how the sessions work because you, you have to build in the cleaning time, the getting in and out time, the where stuff pe people store their personal belongings changes, the not contaminating one another in so many different ways. It has completely changed the integrity of the experience such that it does not resemble in any way, shape or form what gymnastics, what recreational gymnastics was previously. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think this is probably something that we're all going to be dealing with uh, in, in interesting ways um, leading on from this. So um, it's it's now two o'clock, my friends, and um, we said we would do it in the hour, and so we have. I feel like we could go on and on and on and, and have a wonderful other conversation about all manner of other things that we've been talking in the pre-chat about. Uh, but perhaps um, I could just invite, if you're in the audience, if you have capacity to unmute and open your camera, then you might want to just join me in thanking um, and thanking our speakers in the usual way with a bit of a clap or indeed electronically if that's easier for you uh, but it would be good to sort of um, see people's faces and just give them a round of applause thank you so much uh, to, to everyone for that wonderful um, yeah it's been really really great uh, for this conversation I'm sure that we can follow up uh, on all these things if you want to listen again check out Grappling Arts and we'd um, we'd love to if you want to pass that link on to anyone, so people can come and join in the conversation. Uh, thank you for people who came along to Nick and Aluarts, and um, yeah, just for a wonderful, stimulating conversation. Thank you. <laughs>